Please take your Bibles and turn with me in the book of Revelation to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8 today, as we consider this word from Jesus through John. Um, We are beyond the scary parts of Revelation, and we are getting into the so the good, the good happy ending where those who are conquerors do live happily ever after, that long desired end to the story. Um, but let us remember as we do that, that just like the scary passages were calls to repentance for those who are unrepentant, these happy passages are calls to repentance as well, but also calls to faithfulness for those who call themselves the children of God. And so as we bask in the joy that is ours, that is, that is shown to us in these last two chapters, let us keep in mind that these are calls upon us to live faithfully before God. So let us read beginning in Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Let us pray. God of life and light, show us your glory and delight through this passage. Help us to see the majesty of your sovereignty over history and to find our peace and our joy in that sovereignty. May we grow in our love for you and for our neighbor as we consider this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. In the normal course of ministry life, there are certain passages and and certain uh, scriptures that are read during specific times in the life of the church. Today, we open with some passages from Isaiah. That time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, we focus on passages from Isaiah, from Matthew, from Luke, to supplement our worship and to remind us of the glory of our Savior who came to Bethlehem. At weddings, 1 Corinthians 13 and Ephesians 5 are read and preached from as the bride and the groom are called to love and to submit. Today's passage is one of those passages that we typically only read at specific times in the life of the church. 
And those specific times are at funerals. If you've ever had been to a funeral that I've done, typically at the graveside, I will break out and read Revelation 21, 1 through 7 to give comfort to the family of those who died in faith and victory in Christ, reminding us that there is a glorious future that awaits the people of God so that as we grieve, we can grieve with joy and not without hope. But in doing that sometimes, and only considering this passage at funerals, sometimes we do a disservice to the church because we forget that this passage is not just for the dead. It is for the living as well. Joel Beakey, in seeking to bring hope to the living through this passage that is typically read at funerals, asks us three questions, which we will consider today. Who will accomplish the promises in this passage? What will happen when these promises come true and who will be there? So as you and I consider these questions today, we will see that these promises are comfort and motivation for you and for me in our pursuit of holiness today. The first question I want us to look at is who will accomplish this? In 1516, Sir Thomas More introduced a new word into the English language the word utopia. In his book by that title, Moore described an island kingdom that had reached a level of peace and prosperity that the nations around them felt was unobtainable and envied as they looked into this kingdom of peace, this kingdom of glory. The word has since come to describe a state toward which mankind is working. What is this state? What is a utopia? A utopia is a place of peace and prosperity that politicians and philosophers and rulers promise will happen if you just follow their schemes, their plans for the world. Since the 18th century, there has been an assumption that humans can create the right, the proper conditions through the use of reason and rational thought to usher in this utopia, this heaven on earth. This is what most political parties promise every two to four years. Vote for me and utopia will be yours. The general thought is this. If we can just get the right combination of social programs, educational systems, economic distribution, and power brokers, we can usher in a time of unimagined peace and prosperity in this world. There's a problem with this line of thought. And the problem is us, because humans make up all of those things, the social programs, the education systems, the economic distributions, and the power brokers are all humans. And we're all sinners and selfish at heart. The thought that a humanity can usher in utopia, the thought that humanity in their own power can usher in heaven on earth is doomed to fail because we are sinners. And in light of that utter inability of humans to bring in the new heavens and the new earth, God declares to us in verse 5, I am making all things new. Then he goes on to say in verse 6, it is done, or more literally, they have happened. Those promises that he has given to us 
here specifically, but throughout all the scriptures where he promises to usher in a new heavens, a new earth. He says, they are accomplished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Where humanity utterly fails, God will succeed in doing more than we can even imagine. We've been introduced to this title that God gives us in here. I am the Alpha and the Omega. We were introduced to it in Revelations 1, 8, and, and we get a little bit bigger glimpse into this title as we see that he also says, I am the beginning and the end. And it's a reminder that God is sovereign over history. He is the Alpha. He is the beginning. We read back in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God. God is the beginning of history. He created the earth. He created the heavens. He created humanity. He created all things. He is the beginning of history. And he says, I am the end as well. And it's a reminder that all of history moves from point A to point B according to God's sovereign will and for God's glory. Everything that happens, even as as much as we question it, everything that happens in this earth brings glory to God and is, is, and is in his sovereign control. And this should be of great comfort for you and for me. Because if God has all of history in his sovereign grip, he has your beginning and your end in his sovereign grip as well. In his prayer for the Philippian church, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Alpha and the Omega of this world has secured the completion of the good work of salvation, sanctification, and glorification that he began in you. For you and I today and for the Christian of the first century, this is a great comfort and builds in us a great hope. It was great uncertainty in the world of the first century that believed that the gods showed favor by bestowing prosperity on their best and most faithful followers. And yet God calls his best and most faithful followers to a life of suffering, a life of struggle, a life of heartache. As the Christians were suffering persecution in this world and denial of the things that they needed to survive, they were likely asking themselves, is this worth it? Am I going to see the glories of the fulfillment of God's promises? And in answer to that, God says, it is done. I have made and I have kept the promises. All of the promises to the Christians in the first seven letters, all of those promises of glory and a new name and security in the heavenly city of God, God says, I have accomplished those things. Where do you most question God's faithfulness to you? Where do you most wonder if God is truly going to see you through to the glorious future that awaits in the new heavens and the new earth? God declares to you in this passage, I have fulfilled all of those promises. Your future is secure in me. I started the work. You can be confident that I will see it to its completion. Brothers and sisters, as we read this passage, we should take comfort 
that the work that God began, God will complete. So who will accomplish all of these promises? It is the sovereign God of heaven and earth. So what will happen? Now in the last chapter in Revelation 20, 11, John tells us that heaven and earth has fled away. He says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence. And in Revelation 20, verse 1, the first verse today, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The word that is used here to describe this new heaven and new earth that has replaced the heaven and earth that fled away in verse 11 is, is a word that doesn't always mean brand new. It's not like you go to the auto dealership and you got a brand new heaven and new earth. It, it's a word that oftentimes means renewed rebuilt. It's it's a word that describes a a heaven and earth that is remade as God intended. While we're not going backward to Eden, we will move forward into a world, a new heaven, a new earth that is very much like Eden. So we we think about a world where, where there was no death. We think about a world where Man, Adam and Eve, and God walked together in the cool of the morning and the cool of the evening. There was no mediation of God's glory from humanity as they gathered together. It will, it will be a physical world. We get a taste of the new heavens and the new earth in Jesus as he does his miracles while he walked the earth as he was resurrected in his glorified body, it was a physical body that the disciples could recognize and interact with, shaking hands, sticking fingers in the scars if they wanted to. It will be a, a, a physical world that looks very much like this, but without all the junk that comes because of sin. What does Paul say in Romans 8? He said the world anxiously waits, all of creation anxiously waits like a woman in labor to be relieved and redeemed from the groaning suffering that sin has subjected the world to. The animals await anxiously this new heavens and new earth while they will no longer have to bear under the weight of death and pain and harm. The plants, the rocks, the stars, the planets anxiously await the new heavens and the new earth where they no longer suffer entropy and decay. And you and I, brothers and sisters, should anxiously await this new heaven and new earth where we will experience promises that we'll look at here in a few moments. Often when we consider the new heavens and the new earth, our our, our minds naturally go to the question of how. How will God renew the new heavens and the new earth? Now, Scripture does not give us a whole lot of details on how. Now, 2 Peter 3.13, Peter tells us that the elements of this world will melt away. We see in Revelation 20, verse 11, that they have the earth and the sky have fled from God's judging presence Um, We don't get a lot of glimpses into the how. But we have to remember at least one thing as we consider this, how. John is doing his best to once again describe the indescribable. Whether he was seeking to to describe the glory of God on the throne in Revelation 4 and 5 and 
in terms that evoked the most glorious light that he could think of and yet still fell far short of describing the glory of God in a way that did justice to God's glory, his sin-soaked eyes will seek in the next couple chapters to describe the glories of the new heavens and the new earth. But words are not adequate to describe that glory. All that we know for sure is that God will dwell with his people. He will be close to them and we will experience the close fellowship of God. What John does, though, give us a glimpse into is are these seven negative statements that give us a little bit of what it will be like for you and I as we are there. The first thing he says is there is no longer any sea. Now, a couple times in Revelation, when John mentions the word sea, he is talking about the literal oceans, salt water, bodies of water. But most of the time when he uses the word sea, he's talking about the realm of chaos and evil from which the dragon and the two beasts came. This realm of evil and madness will be banished as Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, death and Hades and all of unrepentant humanity are sent into the second death. One of my favorite promises in Isaiah 35 is that God is creating a road for his people that goes from this present earth to the new Jerusalem. And no longer does the lion prowl upon that road. Brothers and sisters, we are so looking forward to to no more sin. And that's a wonderful promise. We won't even be tempted to sin in the new heavens and the new earth. What a glorious promise that is that the that Satan can no longer attack and harry and seek to devour the people of God. Number two, there'll be no more tears. Some of these promises overlap here as we see no more tears, no more mourning, no more crying. What kind of griefs and hurts do you carry? What things of this world cause you to mourn or to weep or to shed tears? It may be the grief of loss. It may be the grief of betrayal. It it may be the grief of your own mind just turning against you. Whatever it is that causes you pain, that causes you mourning, that causes you grief, that emotional pain in this world will be taken away from you. I think some of the scars will remain because the scars will remind us, the the physical and the emotional scars will remind us of the glory that God worked that maybe we didn't see at the time. But as we stand there in His presence, living with Him face to face for all of eternity, we'll be able to see the glory behind some of those scars. And so every time we look at them, We'll we'll worship and honor and glorify God, but the pain that caused those scars will be removed from you and from me. There'll be no more death. The ultimate effect of the fall will be no more. No more long, lingering deaths in hospitals and hospital beds. And no more sudden surprise deaths. All deaths will go away. 
And John says that the old order will pass away. We are so used to the old order. The old order is normal to you and I. We live in a world of sin. We live in a world of betrayal. We live in a world of sickness. We live in a world of death. We live in a world where we need doctors and medicines that sometimes even those medicines cause as much damage as the illnesses they try to heal. Can you imagine? I struggle sometimes. Can you imagine where there's no, a world where there's no more arthritis, no more dementia, there's no more betrayal by friends, there's no more loss because of death, there's no more bad diagnoses, probably not even any doctors, we don't need them anymore. A glorious world where all of these things that weigh so heavily on the people of God are gone. A distant memory. And these seven descriptor, these, these descriptions here that we've seen, no more sea, no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, the old order passing away are dependent upon this promise that God has given us where he says, I will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God Later on in verse 7, he says, He who overcomes will inherit all this. I will be his God and he will be my son or my daughter. The living water will flow from the God who lives with his people. Living water that washes us clean of all those pains, all those sufferings, all those difficulties. As we see the promise of Leviticus 26, 1 through 13, fulfilled once and for all. What was that promise that God gave in Leviticus 26? He said, if you follow my law, if you live a holy life, I will dwell with you forever. And the Israelites failed miserably. You and I fail miserably. And yet God provided a Savior who lived with us so that we could live with God. Who walked our earth so that we could live in fellowship with God. Because of sin, Ezekiel describes the glory of God abandoning the nation of Israel. And yet in chapters 40 through 48, he describes the glory returning in in ways that even Ezekiel could not understand and explain adequately, even though he took nine chapters to do so. We anxiously await the fulfillment of this promise that God will be with his people. Yes, God is always present. He is present everywhere and he is with us. But because we still live under the influence of sin, we wait anxiously for a time where we will stand, sit, bow, worship and live in the full presence of God without fear of his holiness and his glory destroying us. And if we take all these promises together, we see a fulfillment of what Zephaniah told us earlier in verses 14 through 17. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back to your enemy. The Lord, the King of with you of Israel is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. And then in verse 17, he says, 
He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. And he will rejoice over you with singing. That's one of the glorious joys of this promise that God will be with us forever. Is that he will delight in us. He will rejoice over us. And the truth is that in Jesus, he is doing those things today. God takes great delight if you are his child. He takes great delight in you now. He rejoices over you now and he will quiet you with his love now. We walk through life in the pursuit of holiness, thinking that God delights in jumping on us with both boots every time we stumble and every time we fall. And while God does discipline us, that discipline is far less than our sins deserve because that has fallen on Christ. And the discipline is not a sign of his anger with us, but a sign of his delight in you. A sign of him rejoicing in you. That is what we hope for. That is what we wait for is the full weight of God's delight in us to fall upon us. And it has in Christ. Who will do this? God will do it. And what will it be like? It will be like the warm embrace of the perfect father who showers his delight and joy over you for all of eternity. And finally, who will be there? The answer to that question is only those who conquer. He says in verse 7, he who overcomes or he who is victorious or he who conquers will inherit all of this and I will be his God and he will be my son. This word overcome is a word that has shown up throughout the book of Revelation. It described the saints in Revelation 7. It described the saints in heaven in Revelation 14. It It was what the churches were called to in the seven letters to the churches in chapters two and chapter three. To be victorious, to overcome in the context of the book of Revelation is to remain faithful to the testimony of Jesus and in the pursuit of holiness, being obedient to God's law, regardless of the temptations that are around you. And John points this out to us in the negative once again, as he did He pointed to us the glories of the new heavens and the new earth and the negative in the first part of the passage. He explains to us what it means to conquer, to overcome in the negative in verse eight. He says the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Cowardly and unbelieving go hand in hand with this call to faithfulness and obedience. The temptation for the church and the world is to compromise the message of God. The gospel is offensive, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. The world does not like the gospel. Sinners do not like the news that they are doomed to the lake of burning sulfur. And so they do everything that they think is within their powers to shut the church up. Lawsuits, violence, words. And the temptation, brothers and sisters, is to say, well, I'm going to shave off the difficult parts of the gospel 
just so people will like me. God, through John, calls that cowardice. It's the lack of courage in the face of persecution. The cowardly give in to temptation to compromise their obedience. The unbelieving are those who say they trust Jesus, but don't really. And this is seen in their willingness to compromise the good news of Jesus Christ. The vile, those who have polluted themselves in the worship of the beast. Remember, the temptation of the beast is to get people to worship the dragon rather than worship God. And there's a pollution that pours into our life. The more we do that, the more polluted we become, the more evil, the further from God we become. Thanks be to God that the Holy Spirit can come along even to the most vile of person can renew and regenerate their heart and bring them to faith. But there's a danger the longer we worship the beast rather than worshiping God. Murderers, not only is this those who killed the saints, but those who have slandered. Remember what Jesus told us in Matthew 5. You think it's good that you have not murdered somebody. I tell you that if, if out of anger you have called somebody a name, you are guilty of murder. The sexually immoral those who have given themselves both literally and physically to the great prostitute that was, that was described and destroyed earlier in the books. Practicers of magic arts. Now we think, you know, there's not a whole lot of us around here that practice magic, and he's not talking about the guy up on stage that does a card trick every now and then. It's an interesting word that gets translated, uh, those who practice magic arts. In our modern English, the most literal Translation of this is drug dealers. Now, why do people take illegal drugs? Well, they're just trying to find peace in a way that comes from somebody other than God. They're trying to dull the pain of living in this world in their own strength, in their own mind. They're just trying to escape oftentimes. And while drugs are one way to do that, false religion is another way to do that as well. That's why, it's why the translators typically wrap in sorcery and magic arts into this idea. False religions, drugs will work for a time in numbing your heart to the pain of this earth, in distracting you from the difficulties of living in this world. But just like the dragon falls short in his plan for this earth because God is sovereign over it and God has laid out the true plan, any false pursuit of peace in this world will fall far short because it's part of the dragon. Idolaters, those who worship false gods. And then an interesting one, because we would think where we're dealing with murderers, we're dealing with sexual immorals, Immorality, we're dealing with magic and drugs and idol worship. Why would he sneak liars in there? I mean, we're okay with lying in our culture. It's an acceptable practice. So why would God include liars in this list? Well, if we go back to Revelation 14, the first few verses where the great multitude before God is sealed by God with the name of the Lord and the name of Jesus upon their forehead, they are described as those who are found with no untruth upon their lips, no lies upon their lips. 
Liars will slander, and in slandering they are guilty of breaking the ninth commandment and the sixth commandment. In their slander they murder, in their slander they bear false witness. The people of God are marked by truth. Basically, all this can be boiled down to those who have not submitted to the good news of salvation through Jesus and have refused to repent in their life will not be found in the new heavens and the new earth. For you and I today, this is a reminder that we are called to constantly, you and I are called to constantly search our hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures and our hearts to show where we fall short, where we need to repent, and where we need to strive for holiness and the power of God. So who will do this? The sovereign God over humanity has done this. What will it be like? It will be a place where the children of God live forever in the glorious presence of God's delight and God's joy. And who will be there? Only those who are victorious by surrendering to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, these promises are ours today. These are not just future promises that we wait for. These are promises that belong to you and to me today. Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthian church in chapter 5, verse 17, says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone The new has come. Have you called upon Jesus as your only hope before a God who will judge sin? If you have, you are a new creation. And all of those promises that John gives us that we we sometimes think of as only happening at some time in the future. Those promises are yours right now. One of the things about John's gospel, his letter, and even the book of Revelation is that he always talks about future promises in the present tense. Brothers and sisters, are you hoping for a world where there is no more death? It is yours today. Are you hoping for a world where God will wipe away every tear? It is yours today. Are you hoping for a world that the old order of things has passed away? It is yours today. Live as though you are the child of God because you are. Live as though God delights in you because he does. And know that the God who began the good work in you will see it to its glorious completion. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for these promises that are ours in you and in Christ. Help us to live as those that you delight in. Help us to pursue holiness as children, not as slaves. And help us to find peace in the joy that you have over us because of Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week to live life in this world, to to work, to interact with your families, to have fun in your hobbies, take this blessing upon you. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.